This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I give you some tips for how to gauge the racial awareness of your child's school. I talk about the president's latest racist tweets. I give an update on the border crisis, including organizations that are trying to help. And I discuss the latest and disappointing news in the Eric Garner case. But first, my favorite part of the show, let's talk about your reviews. We are up to 147 reviews. That's up from 136 last episode. I'll read two very brief ones this week. The first one comes from Jen Wills 88 and she calls it my new favorite podcast. Jamar says the things I need to hear as a white sister in Christ who desperately wants to do all I can to be an anti-racist ally. He speaks the hard truths and remains full of grace. Not always an easy balance. I highly recommend giving footnotes a listen. A new favorite podcast that is very high praise considering literally the hundreds of podcasts out there. I'm so honored, Jen, that you would tune in and thank you for that excellent review. The next one comes from UK or UK, Y-U-K-E, her, um, and writes, incredible podcast. His honest and candid approach to the issues creates meaningful discussion about issues specific to black people and other people of color. Thank you, sir. You are loved. Oh, I feel the love. Thank you so much for that review. Really, it encourages me. I read these reviews every week because I want you to know that what you say and the fact that you're listening, it's important to me. I do this because of you, the listener. And so thank you so much for the 147 of you so far who have taken the time to sit down and write a review. If you haven't done so yet, please do so. Guys, the ladies are far outpacing you where podcast resembles life. That's typically the case. But gentlemen, I need some of your reviews as well. No matter who you are, though, if you're listening, I would love it if you left a review on iTunes. And if you would share this episode with folks who you think would appreciate it, maybe even those who would be challenged by it and probably wouldn't agree with all my perspectives here. It could be a good conversation starter and one of those things you can do in real life and not just online uh, to sort of expand the racial awareness of the folks around you. And speaking of racial awareness, I want to introduce to you a new section. I'm not sure if it'll be every time we do footnotes. And honestly, I don't even like the name, but you can blame our producer, Bo, as well as some other folks on the Witness team because they liked it. And, well, it's called Tisbits. Tisbits. Like, they wanted me to call the podcast this. And I was like, no way. That's too cheesy. It sounds weird. It's like, uh, I don't know, is that like cat treats or something? Tisbits? I don't know. But these are basically my thoughts based on some things I've seen and experienced and observed in my personal life. And so in this first section of tidbits, Tisbits, what I want to talk about is how to tell if your child's school is racist. 
Okay, okay. All right. Let me put it in, um, sh- shall we say, more sensitive terms. How to gauge the racial awareness of your child's school. And I bring this up because I recently had an experience that reminded me of how rare it is to find a K-12 through school, public or private, that truly does a great job at building racial awareness among all its constituents. So um, my kid gets tutoring, and we had an issue with the tutor to where we had to go to uh, the tutor's boss, basically, who was the principal of a school. It's a private Christian school. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, this principal is getting ready for the school year. And I've been literally in that seat before. I used to be a middle school principal. And so there, everything's going a thousand miles an hour. People think educators get the summer off. No, it's a summer on as you're preparing for the upcoming school year. And so a million things are coming across her desk. And in this meeting where we had this issue, I brought up the fact that there's a, there's a racial difference here between my child as, as black and the, and the tutor as white. And whatever this person's intentions were, I said, this always has to be on the radar, this cultural ish difference, right? These racial issues, especially where we are in the deep south. But it was interesting after the tutor left and it was just me and the principal just sort of debriefing on the whole thing. Uh, she mentioned that of all the things that she was preparing for, that issues of race and what the school was doing proactively to educate its students and faculty and staff about race hadn't come across her desk. And that's not surprising, but it is troublesome uh, because if the leader of the school, the, the person who's in charge in the building, if it's not on that person's radar, then whose radar is it going to be on? And who's going to be pushing this, this, this idea of racial awareness as something that's a priority for everyone, for every constituent involved? And so I thought about this and how deeply it impacted our family. And you don't have to be a person of color to want your child's school to be racially aware and to be sensitive to these issues, especially in this climate where issues of race and racism, what is and isn't racist, that's coming up more and more frequently. Uh, there's a whole host of issues and reasons why this should be, I think, important to every parent. And so I thought about, okay, what do you do proactively to really gauge where your child's school is on this issue. Um, because it's not just about how many students of color there are. It's about how they get treated there. And so here, here's what I came up with. It's, it's, it's a work in progress. So it may not be as polished as it will eventually be. I might turn it into a blog post, but, but here are a few diagnostic questions that you as a parent can ask your child's teachers and administrators to gauge the racial awareness and the racial climate of the school. Here goes the first one. You have to ask about demographics, of course, um, but not just of the students. You have to observe or ask about the demographics, I'm talking about race and ethnicity here, of the faculty and staff and even the board. And this is especially important at private schools and Christian schools because that board is is much more hands-on, tends to be. So looking at the demographics of your child's school, because that tells you a lot of things. Is this school something that is seen by local community members as a school for all kinds of students? Or is this a school just for white students? Or is this the black school or the Latino school or whatever it might be? Knowing those demographics, and even it's informative whether 
your teachers or the administrators can readily tell you because if they don't know, it could be a sign that this isn't even on their radar. So just at a very basic level, inquiring about the demographics of the school. Secondly, um, you would want to know all of the professional development topics they addressed in the past year. Now, this go this is going to tell you whether, as a staff, they've approached the issue of race and racism or culture or ethnocentrism or anything like that. You know, do they have uh, professional development topics about implicit bias? Um, are they doing, you know, curriculum reviews around race and ethnicity and diversity there? Are they talking about perhaps racial incidents that occurred at the school and how to handle them? Are they, are they training their teachers on commu- communicating cross-culturally? Because a lot of times parents and kids and then the faculty and staff might come from very different backgrounds. And, and this will also be much more informative beyond the race and ethnicity question. It'll tell you the other things that they're working on as far as uh, the curriculum itself and, and what content and topics they're teaching or the methods they're using. It'll tell you what their priorities are, basically, what those professional development topics are. So figure that out. Even just the past last year would be important. Along those lines is a curriculum review. Has the curriculum been reviewed for representation of racial and ethnic minorities? Who conducted the review? Was it a a diverse group of teachers, not only racially and ethnically, but across disciplines and different subjects? Was it one person? Maybe it's like the diversity coordinator who they sort of shove off all this responsibility to a single person. My guess would be that a lot of schools haven't done this at all, especially at the K through 12 level. It's a little bit more likely at the college and university level. So when was the last curriculum review and did it include um, reviewing it for representation? Another question, what structures and mechanisms are in place to ensure racial awareness and sensitivity on an ongoing basis? So Instead of just being reactive, if a racial incident happens at the school or in the broader world or culture or the town or whatever, and and then you sort of ad hoc put together a response, is there something in the handbook? Is there a position, um, a, a person in charge of diversity or multicultural affairs that can be a negative thing to where nobody else feels responsible for those issues, but if that person does their job well, they will be helping to distribute the responsibility for race, uh, racial awareness and, and cultural sensitivity among the entire faculty and staff. Is there something permanent? Is there money behind this to uh, indicate that this is an ongoing priority? A couple more questions to help you gauge the racial awareness of your child's school. Um, who is the person charged with handling issues of racism or ethnocentrism that may arise? And I'm speaking specifically about stuff that might happen in the school. Is it the black person who might be the only black person on staff and they figure, oh, since you're, you know, black, you can handle these things. Um, Or is it other people of color who are expected to do this? And I only say that to indicate Are those the only people? Are racial and ethnic minorities the only people expected to respond to these issues? And do they even have a plan in terms of a a process or structure or personnel who will help to handle this? And what you're looking for is that, yes, we do have a plan. Yes, there is a point person or at least a mechanism, a structure, a grievance procedure to handle this kind of thing. And there, there is representation by people of color, but they're not the only ones who are expected to handle this. Uh, two more. 
what extra support do staff members of color receive for the inevitable coaching and counseling that they give to students and parents of color? So this is the work beyond the work. So you're hired and you have your job description, you're a teacher, you're a counselor, you are, um, you know, cafeteria staff, whatever it might be. But oftentimes people of color who are on faculty or staff, they have the additional work, the additional responsibility to help students of color figure stuff out or process racial trauma. And so these people become the confidants of the students because since they are people of color, the students of color might trust them more and go to them more. And that's great that that you have that representation on the faculty and staff that people from the student body feel like they have someone to talk to and someone who they can trust. That's great. But also recognize that this is work in addition to the regular stated responsibilities that might be on a job description. And so, you know, these folks on faculty and staff who are people of color are putting in the extra work of phone calls, of visits, of being that shoulder to cry on and and also educating their white peers about this stuff. Is there extra support there for that? Does that get recognized in terms of promotions and bonuses and uh, vacation time? Those are some of the things. What extra support do those staff members get? And lastly, externally, what is the reputation of the school as far as racial awareness in the rest of the community? So with people who don't go to the school, and you can find out a lot just by asking about, just just by throwing the name of the school out there to cashiers, to gas station attendants, to people you encounter at the DMV or wherever, or, or just folks you know who don't have kids in that school, what is the reputation in the community about that school? Uh, and you can even probably do a Google search to find out some of this stuff. So this is not the last word on this topic, but I do think, I mean, here we are, I'm recording this, it's middle of July, so school year seems a far, far ways away for some folks. You're still trying to figure out how to keep your kids busy over the summer, but in just a couple weeks, it's going to be August, and it's going to be kicking back into gear, this back to school whole push, and you want to be thinking now about how you can proactively address potential issues of racial and cultural awareness. And so these are just some questions that you can ask of yourself, of others, and of the leaders in charge at your child's school. Let's talk about the president's latest racist tweets. So President Trump once again revealed his racist tendencies, and I use that term racist on purpose, which I'll talk about more later, but here's the rundown. On July 14th, the president unleashed yet another tirade on Twitter, but this time his appeal to racism seemed even more overt than usual, if that's possible. Here's what he said. So interesting to see, quote, progressive Democrat congresswomen who generally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt, and inept anywhere in the world, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. He went on to say, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which 
they came. Then come back and show us how it is done. So, yeah. All right, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, he didn't say their names, but it's pretty clear that the progressive Democrat congresswomen to whom the president referred are none other than the squad. That's a nickname given to a group of four freshman congresswomen of color who have been outspoken about their political views and the need to reform the federal government on behalf of the poor, racial and ethnic minorities, women, and a whole host of other marginalized groups. These four women include Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, what struck people as especially offensive was this line about why don't they go back to the places which they came, from which they came. Why is this comment racist? Well, in case it isn't obvious to you, let me break it down. Number one, these are all women of color. All of them. And so to to group them together like this and then make a statement about where they came from, et cetera, et cetera, you can't deny the race factor in this. None of them are are people who are coded or categorized as white. And so that's one thing. Another thing, three out of the four women were born in the U.S. and one legally immigrated and is a U.S. citizen. If this weren't the case, they couldn't even be elected to Congress, which they were. That leads to the next reason why this is racist, to imply that these four women, who are all non-white, again, did not come from this country. It's to assume that anyone not white is foreign, that they're not truly American, or that they're not as patriotic or can't be as patriotic in some, some way. So it's, it is automatically coding people of color as foreign, as not American, as against America, especially when they critique it. Now, the flip side of that assumption is this, that America is a white nation. And more specifically, America is a white Christian nation. So there are some religious aspects here because not all of these women are Christian. Uh, it includes Islam and, 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 uh, anyone else of another religion could be under this rubric considered un-American. So their religion, too, is part of their un-Americanness. So all of these things in just a few tweets, but because it was just so blatant, like it was just out there. There was, there, there was no gaslighting. There was no, there were no dog whistles here. This is, this is a loudspeaker. This is a megaphone blaring racism into the minds and the eyes and ears of the entire nation and beyond. But we've seen this before. It really comes as no surprise that this president would target four women of color, denigrate foreign countries. Do you, I mean, listen to what he said about, about other countries, uh, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, totally broken and crime infested places. He, he says that about these foreign countries, which happen to be populated by black and brown people. And it's no surprise that he would totally disregard the esteemed positions of these women as duly elected members of Congress. So if that's no surprise, then then what's the big deal? Well, what galls me is this. It galls me that there's even a debate about this president's racism. I mean, just do a quick Internet search and you'll see that his racism goes back at least to the 1970s when his real estate company was sued for discriminating against people of color in an apartment complex that he owned. 
And we know who this man is. We know he traffics in racist tropes. We know that he does so for political reasons to stoke up a base and, and entrench their support. So if all of this is true, why are we so hesitant to call the president racist? It's not because the data isn't there. It's not because we can never use that word or apply it to people. Sure, it is overused. I myself, I admit, use the term quite frequently. I hope so. I hope, though, not without cause. But isn't it interesting that among Christians, we are so quick to say that we are sinners and we are in need of a savior and that, and that racism is a sin, but somehow racism is the sin that no one is ever guilty of. How is that possible? Sure, it's easy to label people who are long dead as racist, but is anyone living today a racist? Even when they make blatantly racist remarks, the person who said those things is not racist and cannot be accused of racism the way some people would have it. So, what do we do about it? I think silence is complicity. Now, the eminently quotable MLK said it this way, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Silence in this case is a betrayal of the image of God. People of faith and Americans in general need to go on record to say, this is not okay. It's not okay to speak this way. And as a matter of fact, the U.S. Congress did just that. The House passed a resolution condemning the president's racist tweets. Now, it was mostly a party-line vote of 240 to 187. All the Democrats voted for it, but just four Republicans voted for it. And what about Christians? Where are the prominent white evangelical leaders roundly and publicly condemning such language? Who will go on record to repudiate racism? Now, as a caveat, some commentators have said that this is part of the president's strategy, that he wants to provoke a reaction from the so-called radical left and, and get people to call him racist because this will only increase the sense of aggrievement and, and the idea that regular, meaning white, Americans are under attack by the politi politically correct mafia. Now, that may be the case. That may be part of the strategy. But what's the alternative? Is it to keep silent? To keep quiet out of fear? Also, bear in mind, this is no ordinary citizen who's saying these things. This is the President of the United States who is successfully normalizing racism through a smartphone and from the Oval Office. This kind of discourse in general, let alone from the most powerful political official in the land, is wholly unacceptable. My last thought on this. Every major denomination has written resolutions condemning racism in all its forms. Now, we have these resolutions, but where is the resolve? When it comes to actually denouncing racism in real time, why don't Christians in these denominations lean on their stated and public commitments? You don't even have to say anything new. Just stand for what you say you stand for. So here's your action step. Look up your denomination or tradition's statement on racism. You can easily find them on the internet, read them, post them, and when the next racist incident happens, use those statements. 
Remind your pastors, your elders, your bishops, and other church leaders of what they said, of what they signed on to. Call on them to stand on their principles. And for those out there who think, I'm just harping on the GOP, let's get something straight. This isn't about Republican or Democrat. This isn't about red or blue. It's not about conservative or liberal. It's about right and wrong. It's about calling racism what it is, no matter who is responsible or which party they're from. In the words of Spike Lee, do the right thing. And here's an update on the crisis at the border. So for the last few episodes of Footnotes, I've talked about the humanitarian crisis at the border. It stems from this presidential administration's vow to cut down on people crossing the border between the U.S. and Mexico illegally. Enforcing that promise has led to draconian measures, including separating parents from children and keeping all parties involved in overcrowded, inhumane conditions. In the last couple of weeks, the president announced that he would start deporting people in 10 cities across the U.S. A few days later, he came back to announce that he would postpone or, or halt those deportations temporarily. And ostensibly, he wanted to give Democrats a chance to come up with a plan regarding the asylum crisis. Uh, apparently, they didn't. Not, didn't come up with something that was satisfactory to the president. But it ended up that immigration and customs enforcement agents conducted not these huge raids that he promised, but more small-scale and less high-profile operations in several cities. But still, it had the intended effect, which is to cause fear and concern among immigrants and the people who care about them. So just for context, though, this isn't an issue that began, began with the current president. Under Obama, ICE conducted raids as well. After 9-11 and during George W. Bush's presidency, funding for ICE increased. But in both of those cases, the administrations, they prioritized lawbreakers. What's different now is that any undocumented immigrant in general is being targeted. And furthermore, in the past, raids were typically conducted at the workplace. But now ICE agents are increasingly going to people's homes and using more and more intimidating tactics. So what can we do? Last time on Footnotes, we did a segment on the crisis at the border, and I also asked for help from some of you, from our listeners, to give us ideas on what we could sort of concretely contribute to make sure that we're caring for people at the border. So um, there are a few suggestions that people gave. I'm really just passing along this information. All of this is brand new to me, too. And so you're going to want to do your homework and vet these organizations. But I at least wanted to pass on some preliminary information as well as their websites so that you could do the work yourself and hopefully get engaged uh, in a proactive way about this humanitarian crisis. So first off, thank you to Maggie, who took the time to email me and give me the name of one organization. It's called Seek the Peace. And their website says we are a community of peacemakers and advocates seeking the safety, peace, and flourishing of refugees and immigrants. You can find them at seekingpeace.org. That's seekingpeace.org. They're also on Twitter at seek underscore the underscore peace and on Instagram at at seek the peace. Thanks, Maggie, for that. I also, also want to thank Jennifer for telling me about Lights for Liberty 
Their website says, we are a coalition of people, many of whom are mothers dedicated to human rights and the fundamental principle behind democracy that all human beings have a right to life, liberty, and dignity. We are partnering with national, regional, and local communities and organizations who believe that these fundamental rights are not negotiable and are willing to protect them. You can also Google some of their work. Uh, just hop on the internet. On Friday, July 12th of 2019, Lights for Liberty held a vigil to end human detention camps. And it brought together thousands of Americans to detention camps across the country and into the streets and into their own front yards to protest the inhumane conditions faced by refugees. That's Lights for liberty. Thank you, Jennifer. And then lastly, our very own Tyler Burns. He's my co-host on Pass the Mic. He's heavily involved. He's taken a couple of trips to the border. He mentioned two organizations. One is Preemptive Love. You can find them at preemptivelove.org. And the website says, we meet families on the front lines of conflict, providing them life-saving food, water, and medical care. We give them what they need to hold on and hold out. They also create jobs for those who are victimized by ISIS, So they're active in the Middle East as well. They say we provide small business grants, tools, and coaching so that they can start again and so their families can flourish. So that is preemptive love. And then the last one is the Evangelical Immigration Table. You can find them at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Their website says we are a national movement of Christians committed to learning more about what the Bible says about welcoming the stranger and living out these biblical principles in our churches, our communities, and our nation. And so all of those organizations, you can visit their website. I encourage you to do the work on your own, to research them, find out what they do. And if you are so moved, I think the easiest thing is probably just to support one or many of these organizations financially, but each of them also has a tab or a menu item that that says something to the effect of how you can get involved, how you can become an active advocate uh, for the people who are at the border for a, a variety of reasons, but you know, e- legally or not, these are image bearers. And beyond just sort of tweeting things out or reading articles, we can take some tangible action steps. So thank you for everyone who provided information and keep it coming. You can email me your suggestions and information at footnotespod1 at gmail.com, footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. And our last news item for the day. It's a rather depressing one. It's the latest news on Eric Garner's death and the case that ensued after that. Five years ago, a man named Eric Garner breathed his last breath put into a chokehold by a police officer and surrounded by yet more officers, he soon died from a severe asthma attack brought on by that very physical encounter. Now, his grievous crime, his gruesome crime, was selling Lucy's, or untaxed cigarettes. Now, five years later, after Garner's death and just a day before the statute of limitations was set to expire, the courts gave an update on the case against the officers involved in that fatal arrest. 
Here's an excerpt from the New York Times from an article by Katie Benner. It says, a contentious years-long debate inside the Justice Department over whether to bring federal civil rights charges against an officer in the death of Eric Garner ended on Tuesday after Attorney General William P. Barr ordered that the case be dropped. The article goes on to say that a Staten Island grand jury declined to indict Officer Daniel Pantaleo, who was captured on video wrapping his arm around Mr. Garner's neck. The federal civil rights investigation dragged on for five years amid internal disputes in the Justice Department under both President Barack Obama and President Trump. In the end, Mr. Barr made the call not to seek a civil rights indictment against Officer Pantaleo just before a deadline for filing some charges expired. So the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department had pushed for an indictment, but prosecutors in Brooklyn, where the death occurred, said they couldn't win the case in court. And ultimately, they said they couldn't prove that the officer, Pantaleo, who put Eric Garner in a chokehold, willfully used excessive force. Now, the case isn't completely over. The police commissioner could still take action against the officer, which is necessary because this officer still has his job. Since this incident occurred, he's been on desk duty, no gun, no badge, but he is still allowed to get paid. He can rack up pension benefits. And it's also notable that none of the other officers have even been charged or disciplined in Eric Garner's death. So what does this all mean? It means that no one is responsible for Eric Garner's death. Some would call it a murder. It means that a human being died due to an encounter with police, but that, legally speaking, no one caused or is responsible for his death. Now, plenty of people will come back and say, well, Eric Garner had it coming, he shouldn't have been doing something illegal, he shouldn't have resisted arrest, he had a record of breaking the law, and on and on it goes. I'm not saying that a person's actions are unimportant, but if you're a black man in America, and you have an encounter with the police, it's almost as if you can do no right. It doesn't matter what you're wearing, how you speak, what you were doing or not doing. Any black person is liable to be deemed a threat. And once those officers say they feared for their life, you can basically forget about an indictment, let alone a conviction. Now, I could keep going on about the injustice of the justice system, but I don't want to lose the fact that Eric Garner was a human being. He was a beloved family member who was a father of six kids. His daughter, Erica Garner met a very early death at the age of 27 from a heart attack. Many say that it was a condition exacerbated by the stress of fighting for justice for her deceased father. She literally died fighting for justice. The rest of Garner's family members have continued that pursuit. And I think the words of one of Eric Garner's daughters, Emerald Garner, captures the human element best. Here's what she said. I am very angry. I stand here in the spirit of my sister who fought for justice until her dying day for my father, standing outside protesting. She called the CCRB to do this investigation and they didn't do their job. We called the Department of Justice. They didn't do their job. There is no waiting. There is no nothing. The statute of limitation ends tomorrow. Eric died 7-17-14. We're 7-16-19. Five years later and there's still no justice. So no, there won't be no calm. No, there won't be no peace. No justice, no peace. More evidence than we ever knew got released in this trial. A lot of information that we didn't even know was released in the trial. 
So where's the justice? Don't apologize to me. Fire the officer. Don't give me your condolences. I heard that five years ago. We want justice and we want it today. And with those words, I'll just end with this. No justice, no peace. I can't breathe. Black Lives Matter. That's it for this week. Remember to like my author page on Facebook so we can continue this discussion. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and Twitter at Jamar Tisby. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.